Happy day after Halloween, and welcome to the November 1st, 2022 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to letting you know about what's new in Annals since our last podcast. Extreme weather events and the energy crisis have made concerns about climate change top of mind for many people. While climate change is bad for the health of our planet, climate change and environmental pollutants also pose serious threats to human health. An American College of Physicians position paper details policy actions that the ACP believes are needed to address the climate crisis and reduce exposure to hazardous substances and air and water pollution. ACP also emphasizes the need to achieve environmental justice so that everyone can live, work, learn, and play in a safe, healthy environment. The paper reflects many of the concerns previously outlined in a 2016 policy paper but broadens recommended policy actions to include a wider array of environmental exposures that impact human health. In order to improve environmental health for all, ACP recognizes that human and planetary health are interconnected and that the climate change is a global human and environmental health crisis. ACP calls for immediate action to limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. ACP calls for comprehensive action to achieve environmental justice. ACP supports efforts to reduce indoor and outdoor air pollution. ACP supports improvements to the Safe Drinking Water Act, Clean Water Act, Lead and Copper Rule, and other laws and regulations dedicated to ensuring access to clean, potable, safe water. ACP supports action to protect the public from harmful exposures to toxic substances, including new and existing chemicals with particular attention to children, pregnant people, and other susceptible populations. ACP recommends sustainable and sufficient funding for federal agencies with an environmental health mission. In an accompanying editorial, Drs. Emily Sine and Andrew Hantel write, quote, The ACP's recommendations cannot be implemented fast enough. Worldwide pollution is responsible for an estimated 9 million deaths annually. Under current emission scenarios, excess global heat mortality is expected to reach 83 million people by the year 2100. Internists, medical subspecialists, and the entire health community are already caring for those harmed by climate and environmental causes, end quote. And there is more on the topic of climate change. Next is a new commentary that offers strategies for healthcare organizations to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and outlines potential strategy trade-offs to consider toward this goal. The authors believe that the healthcare industry has a moral imperative to reduce its emissions and environmental footprint and force transformation across other sectors it touches. As an industry, healthcare is both directly impacted by and a contributor to climate change. Extreme temperatures, forest fires, and natural calamities, and the expansion of the range of infectious diseases all have health impacts on persons worldwide. The global healthcare industry also leaves a significant environmental footprint, with healthcare accounting for the fifth largest source of all greenhouse gas emissions. Currently, there is no mandate to force these organizations to prioritize the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. In their call to action, the authors outline three broad scopes to understand the sources and magnitude of greenhouse gas emissions in the healthcare industry. Direct emissions from the healthcare organizations, indirect emissions by energy and utility suppliers, and supply chain and other emissions. The authors then argue that the short-term investments in more expensive but sustainable healthcare infrastructure are often both reasonable and profitable in the long term. 
They also call on healthcare stakeholders, policymakers, and clinicians to implement high-level changes to make healthcare more sustainable. They advise that providing healthcare for all will not succeed without addressing the twin risk for environmental pollution and ecological catastrophes secondary to climate change. Whether observed associations between vitamin D status and mortality are causal has been a topic of ongoing debate. Next is a study of more than 300,000 adults in the United Kingdom that found support for a causal relationship between vitamin D deficiency and mortality. These findings suggest a need for public health strategies to maintain healthy levels of vitamin D in the population. Researchers from the University of South Australia in Adelaide, Australia, conducted a nonlinear Mendelian randomization study of 307,601 participants in the UK Biobank to assess genetic evidence for the causal role of low vitamin D status on mortality. The authors evaluated measurements of participants' 25-hydroxy, vitamin D, and other genetic data. They also recorded and analyzed both all-cause and cause-specific mortality. Over a 14-year follow-up period, the authors found that the risk for death decreased significantly with increased vitamin D concentrations, and the strongest effects were seen for persons in the severe deficiency range. They note that recent estimates for the prevalence of severe deficiency range from 5 to 50% of the population, with rates varying by geographic location and population characteristics. According to the authors, their study affirms the potential for notable effect on premature death and the continued need for efforts to abolish vitamin D deficiency. Globally, the need for fair and equitable access to safe and effective COVID-19 vaccines is urgent. Intradermal delivery is a dose-sparing technique that could be used to immunize more people with the same limited vaccine stockpile. The papillary dermis contains a higher density of antigen-presenting cells than muscle tissue. Therefore, intradermal delivery of fractional vaccine dose into the skin layer can be as effective as intramuscular administration of a standard dose. To assess safety, tolerability, and immunogenicity of intradermal fractional dose administration of the mRNA-1273 COVID-19 vaccine as a potential dose-bearing strategy, the authors of the next article conducted a proof-of-concept dose escalation open-label randomized control trial in a tertiary medical center in Leiden, the Netherlands. They recruited participants from April to May 2021 from a database of people who had previously showed interest to participate in upcoming COVID-19 vaccine trials. Eligible participants were healthy adults aged 18 to 30 years with no history of COVID-19. At every visit, participants were screened for past SARS-CoV-2 infection by serology and PCR tests and were excluded from further participation when positive. In part one of the study, 10 participants received 10 micrograms of an mRNA-1273 vaccine, one-tenth of the standard dose intradermally on days 1 and 29. In part two, 30 participants were randomized to receive two doses of 20 micrograms of the mRNA-1273 vaccine, one-fifth of the standard dose, either intradermally or intramuscularly on days 1 and 29. Concentrations of IgG and IgA binding antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 spike-1 and receptor binding domain and virus neutralization titers were measured at day 36, day 43, and month 7. 38 of 40 participants completed the study until day 43 and 31 until month 7. 
The main reasons for preliminary study termination were COVID-19 or receiving an additional vaccination elsewhere. The most commonly reported adverse events were short-lasting and consisted of mild pain, itching, erythema, and swelling at the injection site. All participants showed robust antibody responses at day 43 that were still detectable at month 7. The binding antibody responses for anti-S1, IgG, anti-receptor binding domain, IgG, and neutralizing antibodies showed similar patterns. These data demonstrate that intradermal delivery of a two-dose regimen of 10 micrograms or 20 micrograms of mRNA COVID-19 vaccine was well-tolerated and induced a durable antibody response. Although true vaccine efficacy depends on multiple factors, antibody concentrations measured after fractional dose vaccination in this proof-of-concept trial were within the ranges that correlated with high levels of protection in phase three trials of the vaccine. Direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, are commonly used to prevent strokes in persons with atrial fibrillation. However, there is not clear guidance for choice among the four available DOACs because head-to-head clinical trial data are not available. In the study reported in the next article, researchers from University College London studied more than 500,000 new DOAC users in France, Germany, the United Kingdom, and the United States to compare outcomes and adverse effects. They analyzed data for 281,320 apixaban users, 61,008 dibigatran users, 12,722 endoxaban users, and 172,176 rivaroxaban users. They found that the use of apixaban was associated with lower rates of GI bleeding compared to other DOACs. However, no meaningful differences were observed between DOACs in outcomes for other comparisons. They report that users of apixaban experienced similar rates of ischemic stroke or systemic embolism and all-cause mortality compared with other DOACs. The authors also report that these findings were consistent for patients aged 80 years or older and patients with chronic kidney disease who are often underrepresented in clinical trials. According to the authors, their results indicate that apixaban might be preferable to other DOACs because of the lower rate of GI bleeding and similar rates of stroke, but consideration of all potential risks and benefits would be needed, such as the use of gastroprotective agents in patients with high risk for GI bleeding. And staying on the topic of anticoagulation, next is an analysis of the CHANCE-2 trial that found that persons with normal renal function receive greater benefit from antiplatelet therapy with ticagrelor aspirin than with clopidogrel and aspirin. Dual antiplatelet therapy with clopidogrel and aspirin is often recommended for preventing stroke and can reduce thrombotic risk in patients with impaired renal function. Tychogrelor can provide greater, faster, and more consistent P2Y12 inhibition than clopidogrel and has been shown to be an effective antiplatelet therapy for preventing recurrent strokes. Reduced renal clearance of clopidogrel could increase the risk for increased plasma concentrations in patients with impaired renal function, so renal function needs to be considered when selecting optimal antiplatelet therapy. Researchers from Capital Medical University in Beijing, China, conducted a post hoc analysis of the CHANCE-2 trial comprising 6,378 patients who experienced CYP2-C19 loss of function allele carriers with minor stroke or transient ischemic attack to investigate the effect of renal function on the efficacy and safety of ticagrelor and aspirin versus clopidogrel and aspirin treatment. 
In the trial, patients received either ticogrelor and aspirin or clobidogrel aspirin, and the renal function was evaluated by estimated glomerular filtration rate levels. The authors found that ticogrelor and aspirin compared with clobidogrel and aspirin substantially reduced the risk for recurrent stroke within 90 days of follow-up in patients with normal renal function, but this benefit was not apparent in those with mildly or moderately to severely decreased renal function. They also report that there was no absolute increase in severe or moderate bleeding events with ticogrelor and aspirin treatment across GFR categories. According to the authors, their findings suggest that renal function should be considered when deciding on the use of dual antiplatelet therapy. The management of cystic fibrosis has changed markedly with the introduction of therapies that target the disease-causing mechanism. Cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator modulators include elexacaftor, tezacaftor, and ivacaftor. These are novel drugs that either potentiate or correct cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator channel dysfunction. Measurement of sweat chloride concentration is the most used method to assess cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator function in vivo. However, sweat chloride only associates marginally with clinical disease features, is time-consuming, requires experienced staff, and has large intra-individual variation. Many other biomarkers for cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator exist, but have complicated approaches that limit their use in clinical settings. Renal dysfunction may be related to cystic fibrosis and may be measured through tests quantifying bicarbonate secretion in the kidney that occurs via pendrin. Cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator is fully necessary for the function and regulation of pendrin, which in cystic fibrosis leads to an impaired ability to excrete excess bicarbonate. These patients have a reduced ability to increase renal base excretion after oral sodium bicarbonate loading, making such a challenge test a potential option for drug treatment monitoring. Researchers from Aarhus University in Denmark studied 50 adult patients with cystic fibrosis starting cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator modulator therapy to evaluate the association between challenged bicarbonate excretion and clinical characteristics at baseline, quantify the modulator drug-induced changes of challenged bicarbonate excretion after six months of treatment, and characterize the intra-individual variation in healthy adults. The authors evaluated and quantified urine bicarbonate excretion after an acute oral sodium bicarbonate challenge before and six months after treatment. They found that challenged urine bicarbonate excretion was associated with cystic fibrosis disease characteristics. Treatment increased bicarbonate excretion to about 70% of that seen in control participants. According to the authors, this early stage evaluation shows that challenged urine bicarbonate excretion offers a new, simple, and safe functional assessment quantifying the biological consequences of reduced cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator function and the extent of functional recovery after pharmacologic treatment. The last new article I'll highlight is a commentary that asks the question, in these uncaring times, will physicians lead us back to our better angels? The author is Robert Doherty, who recently retired after four decades in health advocacy. Mr. Doherty writes, quote, individual physicians will have to decide what they're willing to do and risk. If you are a physician reading this, what will you decide to do if a state prohibits physicians from providing or making referrals for evidence-based, even life-saving care? What will physicians do to resist hateful laws or discriminatory practices in their own institutions? 
What will physicians do to speak out about the cultural influences, politicians, and gun lobby that contribute to deaths and injuries from firearms? End quote. I urge you to go to annals.org to read this thought-provoking commentary and reflect on the questions the author poses. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will go to annals.org to read some of the articles I've mentioned and encourage your colleagues to do the same. I also hope they will return in two weeks for the next Annals podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Legman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support.